Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So in my work, I have trouble living without my notebook. I scribble all of the things that I have to do in it. I write down commands that I run that I don't want to forget. But I just learned that there is another kind of notebook. Jupiter notebooks, you must be talking about. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> well, how, however could this coincidence have occurred? That was exactly what I was going to talk about today. Yeah, we just started our Skype call, just just as we started recording. Um, you are listening to Linear Digressions. Okay, Jupiter notebooks. Actually, I was thinking of, like, Python notebook. But I'm wondering, are, are those related? Ah, uh, yes, they are. They are. So uh-huh. these used to be called IPython notebooks, um, and still sometimes people call them that. But Jupiter is what they're called now. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't write Python, and I actually barely have written any Python. But once I did encounter uh, a Python notebook, IPython notebook, or whatever it's called, and if I remember correctly, it's just a bunch of Python commands or code snippets that you can run in a sequence or uh, independently. And it's organized in this way that makes it kind of easy to understand uh, how the things might relate to each other. Uh, yeah, I think that's actually not a bad description, although I'm going to correct you on one thing. Please which is do. That, yeah, so the nomenclature is not an accident that we don't call them Python notebooks anymore. So Jupiter is actually, stands for Julia, Python, and R. Um, And so it's not just Python anymore. You can Mm. run an R notebook, and I assume a Julia notebook too, although I haven't tried. Um, So it's an ecosystem that's breaking out of its Python roots a little bit and becoming more language agnostic. So I wanted to, number one, explain the name, and number two, uh, give that clarification for all of our many R listeners out there that I'm sure that we have. Um, if you're looking R, to try something that, new, is R? that the the pirates R? Uh, yes. No, it's a programming R, R language. R is actually Stop a programming it. language, right? <laughs> it's a programming language. Yeah. When when do people use R? Uh, I mean, in a lot of cases, you can use it for many of the same things that you use Python for for data science. So it's kind of mm. like data loading, cleaning. Machine, lo- machine model building, visualization. Uh, we could get into like some of the details about where Python and mm-hmm. R are each a little bit stronger, but that would be machine, a little far afield. Machine learning. 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 Anyway, <laughs> um, but it's worth noting. So I actually, I don't know if I really started doing data science before Jupyter Notebooks were a thing, but I remember spending the first few months of my uh, data science career, so to speak, not having used notebooks. So there was a world that I lived in for a little while that did not involve them. And let me tell you what it looked like. Um, What I had was basically a terminal window open, and I would have scripts that I was writing in one window, and that would be the actual workflow that I was building or the code. And then in another window, I would have either a command line, like a bash shell, where I would run the script over and over again, or I would have a Python interpreter, which is allowing me to evaluate the the code kind of line by line. And that's okay, uh, but there are some big limitations. Uh, this doesn't allow me to easily document the code that I'm writing. So if I'm exploring, I don't have a good way of writing notes to myself about what it is I'm doing, or if I've finished exploring and I'm trying to make kind of like a nice version, 
the only tools that I have are things like comments and doc strings, and who knows if anybody's going to read that. So documentation is a little bit challenging. Uh, visualizing things can be challenging, so I can make a picture once, but there's no way, for example, to package up a picture with the code that created it as a, as a single coherent unity the way that I can in a notebook. It's kind of hard for me to remember what I did, so sometimes I'm monkeying around and trying different things, and sometimes that order matters, and you can't always remember what it was you did that like gets you to a good result, and it can I be hard to there. reconstruct it. Yeah, so it doesn't really always leave a very good trail of breadcrumbs, so to speak. Uh, it's hard to know where to start next time, so I might shut my terminal and go home for the evening, and then when I pull it back up, there's kind of a big startup cost of remembering where all the relevant pieces of code are, getting everything kind of all up and running. Uh, it's probably not a great environment for exploring. So like I said, it's easy to lose track of where you are and it's not that easy to visualize, which means that data exploration can be a little bit harder than would be ideal. And then last, maybe this is the most important, is it's not good for reproducibility. So if I wanted to, if I'm messing around with my code in this way, I don't have a good way to document it. Maybe it's in all kinds of weird order. It doesn't have any pictures. That's pretty hard for me to take and pass off to someone else and say, here you go, you're gonna be able to recreate the thing that I just did. That can be pretty challenging. So notebooks are a nice solution to all this. Um, and as you sort of describe them, it's a series of cells of either code in Python or R or whatever. Um, and then there's also Markdown, so you can write sort of like text to yourself about what it is you're doing. So you can kind of get this very nice pattern of interleaved prose explanations of what it is you're doing and why, and then you can have the code that actually does that. That's really neat. And do you tend to write these for your own documentation for yourself, or do you write them for other people, or maybe a little bit of both? Both. Both. So one of my favorite ways to, for example, when I have to train new people who are hired at the startup that I work at, one of my favorite ways to train them is to actually give them a Jupyter notebook that has examples of the things that I want to work through in it. So then I know that they have it for future reference and it's kind of all written there. We can work through it together. But all the code in there actually, like I know that it works and we can sit there and execute it together and, and see, fiddle around with it, change it, see if we can predict what's going to happen, that kind of stuff. All right, so Katie, I have been listening to everything you've been saying, but I've been simultaneously Googling around because this sounds like something that I want. And I, I guess up until now, I had assumed because it was called, uh, what, IPython notebook? Was that what you Jupiter. said it was called? Uh, before. Oh, IPython, yeah. Right, I assumed, okay, but I don't program in Python. But silly me, um, surely someone has built this tool for, uh, for other languages aside from uh, Juniper, Python, R. And it turns Julia. out that, yes, <laughs> uh, just <laughs> Julia. <laughs> I'm just stumbling around. I don't know what I'm talking about. But um, I can say that I Googled around and I, I found that there are actually uh, over 40 languages that are supported uh, within Jupyter as, as dependencies. Um, so like Fortran and uh, Ruby, JavaScript, nice. CoffeeScript, although who wants to program in CoffeeScript these days? Uh, Erlang, PHP, MATLAB, Bash. There's just a, a ton. And this is really exciting because this means that I might actually 
uh, pull this up at work tomorrow and start building, like start doing some documentation through this if I can find a way to integrate it. Because this is definitely a better way of documenting than um, writing up wiki articles that are out of context of the code or just running things blindly without without the context of the documentation you could write around it. This is just really neat. Well, uh, great. That's I actually didn't know that they had so many different languages they supported, but that's awesome. Now, if you're a data scientist who's familiar with notebooks, uh, this might all be old news to you, but there's there's a problem that you can run into with notebooks after a little while. So let me explain it to you, Ben. Uh, as a new user, when you start to have uh, get confused, I'm going to tell you why, and then uh, a a solution that exists to this. I love this. You're going to like tell me what all of the potholes are. Well, it, I mean, not really potholes, just stuff that you need to be aware of. So mm. we said that okay. there's all these cells that have code in them, and concretely, what happens is if you put your cursor inside one of those cells and you hit Shift Enter, it will run the code in that cell, and it'll kind of do that without any other rules. So you don't need to, for example, try to execute them in order. You can skip them. A notebook doesn't lock you down to um, any particular sequence of execution of cells. And in general, that's great. That means that they're really easy to like iterate on and, and very flexible, but it can be sort of a problem for reproducibility because very often when people are exploring uh, you can wander down some of these different paths in exploring your data uh, in the notebook and then not really trim them away effectively and it can end up messing up your flow. So let's say oh, you I start see. in cell number one, yeah, and then you go to cell number two and then maybe you go to cell number three, but cell number three, you're not really happy with the results that you get there. So you go back to cell number two and you make a change in cell number two, right? So let's say there's some like, data that got processed in cell number two, and that's the input to a model that's in cell number three. Well, now you've just changed the code in cell number two, so that underlying data changes when you execute the code, but cell number three doesn't automatically update accordingly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you can imagine then different variations on this idea where you're skipping around. If you have a, a cell where you have a variable and then you add one to that variable in the cell, you know, if you sit there and you execute that cell 10 times, then it's going to get incremented by 10 uh, instead of just by one, even though when you're looking at the code, it only increments it by one. So there's funny things that can happen with state basically in notebooks if you're not careful. Right, right. And yeah. if you're doing, if you're doing everything, um, with no mutation, I mean, obviously that defeats some of the, the purpose that a lot of people come to notebooks for, which is data processing, where you do a thing to a data uh, set, and then you do another thing to a data set, and then you maybe run a model on it, and then you, you do something to the output of that, and then you run another model, so you're mutating all the way. Um, that's really where you get into trouble, because if, if all of your different nodes are not changing the data at all, then you can run them in any order and you won't actually run into this problem. But typically, you are doing mutation on your data, and so you do you can run into this problem if you're exploring. Right. So there's a new tool that I haven't had a chance to try yet, but it's uh, out of the uh, the labs of the good folks over at Stitch Fix, which is the um, startup where they mail you boxes of clothes. 
<laughs> they have a pretty that's that's what i pretty, thought it was yeah yeah but they have a really interesting uh data science operation that they're running out there and a really excellent blog um and so they have a really good article they came out recently uh and we will have a link in lineardigressions.com as always uh where they're talking about a, a fun new little tool that they made called Nodebooks, where they spell node with a d instead of with a t um, and it's trying to address this problem. So it imposes some rules about the order in which cells will actually be executed. So one example is if you have this case where you have a variable and you add one to it, if you rerun that cell 10 times, it's not going to add 10. It's just going to add one, one time. And then, so it's kind of like knows the order in which the cells are supposed to be executed and that each one mm -hmm. is supposed to be executed once and keeps track of all the changes that happen internally and makes sure that you don't end up in some weird unpredictable place. And this is kind of nice because it allows you to do things not just like keep track of your work and make it more reproducible, but for example, you can imagine that there's a data set, let's say, that you load up in cell number one and you clean away a bunch of outliers in cell number two. You do a whole bunch of other things in three through nine and then in cell number 10, you build a machine learning model. Now let's say that all those intermediate steps, three through nine, you don't wanna mess with those, but you wanna change the way you cleaned away outliers at the very beginning of the process um, and then have that change propagate all the way through. Normally in a notebook, what you would have to do is you go back to cell two, you change the way you clean the outliers, then you re-execute cell three, then cell four, then cell five. You have to kind of update everything one after the next. Like click, shift, enter, click, shift, enter, click, shift, enter. Yeah, and it's like kind of tedious and like, especially mm. if you haven't been very careful about like keeping track of if you're supposed to execute them in any particular order, then that can get you in trouble. But notebooks can keep track of the relationships of the variables between the different cells. And so what you could do in a notebook is you go all the way down to cell, you change cell two. It knows that cell two through this intricate web of other cells is an input into cell 10. So then you can just go straight down to cell 10 and say re-execute and it kind of recursively re-executes all the steps in between because it knows that there's an update that it has to process. But like, it's not gonna do that for cells that it doesn't have to reprocess. So this, it's kind of clever like that where it makes it a little bit uh, less obnoxious in, in some ways to experiment and to keep things kind of neat and orderly when you're doing that, which is really nice. That's pretty awesome. I am really excited because not only did I learn something cool about data science, which is not my day job, but something I'm very interested in. <laughs> I learned something that I can go to work as a, a software engineer and, and use. That's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, let me know how it goes. I hope you enjoy it. I sure will. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.